Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for listening in. Thanks to Ed Hackey for producing the show and to Rebecca Terhune for all her help with marketing and media. Um, so we have a, a really great episode for you here with Chris Tilling interviewing Lincoln Harvey, and we hope you enjoy the episode. If you have a chance to give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in, that would be fabulous. Enjoy the episode. So welcome to OnScript during this rather strange season, but today it's an honour to introduce my good friend Lincoln Harvey. He is the Assistant Dean at St. Melitus College and a theologian who has a huge impact on my own life and theology. And um, sorry for saying this in his presence, but not only because of his brilliance, and I use that word advisedly, but also because he models something important in the life of a theologian, namely... He refuses to take himself too seriously, and perhaps you'll um, see some of that in the conversation that emerges. This is to say that uh, Lincoln has an extremely keen and sharp theological mind, and he can talk shop with the best of them. But he is firmly committed to the church and its life as an ordained minister. Indeed, he's probably the best preacher I've ever heard, and and uh, unfortunately, he's he's way better than me at preaching, which is is slightly irritating. He's got no, not just a bit of poetic flair, I've got to tell you. But um, how can I, how can I put this? You see, I've just waxed lyrical about my friend Lincoln, but you might not guess any of this if you bumped into him in a street. Uh, I will, um, I will leave you to do the necessary Google searching to see what I mean. But anyway, he's the author of a, a brief theology of sport, which was published um, in 2014. He edited The Theology of Colin Gunton, uh, which was published in 2010, and Essays on the Trinity in 2018. But today, we are going to discuss his latest book, Jesus in the Trinity, A Beginner's Guide to the Theology of Robert Jensen, published by SMC Press this year, 2020. It's one of the most exciting, mind-bending books I have ever had the joy to read. And had he asked me to blurb the book, which he didn't, by the way, uh, I'm just mentioning that in passing, but if he had had asked me to write a blurb, I would have used one word. Braingasm. So you missed that chance, eh, Lincoln? It reads through wild twists and turns, all grounded on the identification of the second person of the Trinity with Mary's boy and Pilate's victim, with the name of Jesus Christ, to claims such as the following, and this is from page 163, the only way the creature could separate itself from God is to take him in our hands and kill him. But God has always, already chosen the event of separation as his life in Jesus Christ, whose hypostasis, as an eternally subsisting relation that is its own term, is always and forever determined by its directionality to the cross. And this means that nothing can separate us from the love that God is, because the event of the creature's attempt to separate is the definition of his life. 
And after taking us through a cluster of key terms for Jensen and having set Jensen and his theology in light of the tradition, he focuses on the heartbeat of it all, namely Jensen's doctrine of God, before completing the book with some meditations on what all of this might mean for us today. And by the end, perhaps moving beyond Jensen, he will claim that, quote, all creation springs from the cross and tomb as he wrestles with time. Into, uh, sorry, wrestles time into conformity with the word which is, always was, and ever will be Jesus Christ. So as I said, slightly inappropriately, braingasm. Lincoln, welcome to OnScript. Thank you ever so much, Chris. It's the first um, braingasm I've ever caused. And that's an image that I won't cherish, but will try to discard. But thank you for... Um, sharing that with us. It's a delight to be here. That's a, a very generous introduction and um, I'm indebted to you for that and humbled by it. I suspect you've oversold me somewhat. But it is nonetheless a, a, a sheer delight to be here. I'm emerging from what can only be described as a weird form of Plato's cave where I'm just submerged into this pixelated world of Zoom meetings and Teams and feel like I'm chasing shadows as the college that I work for adjusts to the reality of this pandemic and probably driven by the university's fear that we're going to have to refund everyone's fees. We've made an instinctive pivot to shift reality into the online space in a seamless way that's meant that my life has been defined by a persistent chaining to this screen uh, devoid of any air, devoid of any theological breath, and therefore deeply excited about a chance to talk theology, but also fearful that I've got a, a, a rusty brain, shall we say, uh, the brain of a bureaucrat rather than the, the soul of a theologian, which is what I really cherish, and I hope um, we can reignite my fire, as it were. Now, Lincoln, to some questions. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a bit about your academic background you know who's influenced you the most background rather than foreground although um, I haven't moved far from the first tree I climbed in some respects uh, how to put it I suppose in a nutshell um, the good lord dragged me into the church through a head backwards through a hedge um, I found myself for one reason or another um, situated in a religious community as to all intents and purposes, a monk. Um, I did there stumble upon a book on the, about the sixth shelf up of a tall spiralling library. I managed to get hold of it by accident, if such things happen. Um, the work of Karl Barth and his commentary on Romans and read that. And Barth's work really, well, first and foremost, exploded the myth of my own piety and certainly... Um, commanded halt to my religious vocation as a monk and spun me out of the friary, supported by the brothers and the religious order, into the academic world where I undertook some um, postgraduate work at King's College London, a remarkable institution, both now but particularly at the time because it was defined by the work of Colin Gunton, who I um, learnt from initially in, in my master's, and then um, had the privilege of working with him initially on my PhD until his tragic death 
um, which was unbelievably about 17 years ago, well not about, almost exactly. Anyway, um, so Colin Gunton, Karl Barth, key figures in my early formation as well as the wider faculty at King's. We were fortunate to have people like Steve Holmes now at St Andrews um, teaching and I learned so much from them all, both the spirit of theology as well as the, 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 the task itself. And central to that was a community at King's called the Research Institute in Systematic Theology, where I had a number of great friends, um, key shapers of my approach to theology, whether that's people like Brian Brock, Paul Cumin, Chris Roberts and the like, um, but also visiting dignitaries. We were fortunate that Colin was a, a popular man in certain circles who was able to gather a cluster of close friends around him to share their labours with us postgrads. So John Zazoulis was around on mm. a regular basis and Robert Jensen, who um, was also present at King's a good number of so times. So that was your first exposure to Robert Jensen, was yes, it? Yes, yes, it was. Um, more by proxy than immediacy, but he would certainly come. He was, a, a, a first and foremost, a dear friend of Colin Gunton's. Um, but he had, in fact, been Colin's supervisor, at King's, not at King's, um, um, in Oxford. And so the two of them had, had grown and worked together, had their convergences and differences, as it were, um, and, but yet somehow between them mimicked a lot of the ancient controversies in the church, a lot of the skirmishes and debates, um, with much in common and yet key differences that meant that the conversation between them and certainly Colin's um, attempt to often correct what he saw as tendencies in in Jensen um, was a real fruitful place, a sort of an intersection where someone like myself, as though I was a novice in a religious order, I remained a novice as a theologian and it was a great place to, to learn some of those um, core essential questions and to begin to decipher what might be the best way of answering them. So yes, I, I'd say background, so Bart, I only mentioned it at the beginning, towering figure, of course, Jensen greatly influenced by Bart, um, Gunton simile, and King's had a certain um, spirit about it that could be captured, though it was never a moniker that anyone accepted, but could be captured by the word Bartian. So Bart, Jensen's, Azulus, and dearly beloved Colin were key academic influences in my background. Sorry you didn't get a mention in that, Chris. Yeah, well, I'll edit something in, I, I think, a little bit later on, um, just to make it clear how important I've been in, in your own academic development, but thanks for noting that. Um, now, so when you, when you started getting into to Robert Jensen's work, um, what is it that attracted you to him? What, you know, what particular penny drop, penny drop moments did, did he offer you? I mean, what got you excited about Robert Jensen's theology? A whole host of things, um, but some things in particular. I mean, what got me into him? Let, let, let me make a, a, a point on that, because Jensen himself once said that the people we engage with, within any, no one reads the whole of the tradition, as he puts it, and none of us do. None of us have an encyclopedic knowledge, apart from a few luminaries, perhaps, Rowan Williams or John Milbank or, or, or such, um, 
basically people who are walking libraries in their own minds. But for the most of us, for the most part, we have to dip into the tradition and engage with particular people in particular ways. And the reasons for doing will effectively reveal something of our biography. And therefore, it's contingent. My engagement with Jensen is, in some sense, an accident. It is to do with the fact that the Lord washed me up onto the beach, as it were, of King's College London, and there I was situated in a community where Jensen was a key voice. And so I was able, really, to see, to hear, to meet, to read, and to begin to be exercised by this somewhat um, endearing beautiful-looking man bedecked in clerical collar more often than not who would arrive with strange tidings. He was a theologian who would be present, would speak familiar language, but often in a way that was strange. I wasn't, and probably am still not, bright enough to really work out what was at stake, but there always seemed to be a, a rub with, with Jensen. There always seemed to be something that he was doing that looked to all intents and purposes normal, and yet clearly there was more at stake. And initially, as I encountered his work, like most um, postgraduates, you're, you're seeking to commandeer voices to support your own quavering voice as you try to argue a thesis. So I, I effectively started reading him with a desire to use him, you know, cherry-picking the occasional source to support a thesis that I thought was worth defending. And yet, there was something about his work that really resisted that more than most, that he refused to be used. But there was something always awkward about what he was doing, something um, that, to put it positively, was intriguing, that he didn't quite fit into the, the normal scheme of things, even though he was evidently doing precisely what we're all called to do, to ponder the good things of the gospel to allow the gospel to shape every aspect of our thought. Well, I mean, that really, that really sums up the first chapter of the book in many ways, isn't it? You're, you're at pains to point out that for Jensen, well, that Jensen's God is strange. And can you just tell us a little bit more about what makes that strangeness um, what it is? Well, the, str the strangeness of God, as Jensen sees it, will creep up on us in some ways as well as drop explosively in others you will have um, Jensen delivering odd sentences which will arrest you you will suddenly come across him saying that God really has a mother who needn't be a goddess to achieve this or he'll suddenly throw away a line that if Jesus had not risen the Christian God would not be rather than the other way around. And, it, and you'll be cantering through various works and uh, often short uh, episodic essays that he wrote or uh, a condensed systematics or whatever it might be and, and you stumble or trip over these sentences where you realise there's a whole revolution going on in a turn of a phrase, a revolution that is effectively um, triggered by the oddity of God a God who um, refuses to fit into some photo fit of our own imagining. 
something, some job description that we think a God must be in order to fill the role. But it's instead peculiar to the extent that he's locatable, pickoutable, and essentially, and I think that's the right word to use, essentially the man Jesus Christ. Jensen has this unshakable belief that the second person of the Trinity is Jesus, that Jesus isn't somehow related to the second person of the Trinity, but that the relation is one of identity. And rather than allow a metaphysic, so a a fundamental construct of reality, rather than allow uh, an otherwise determined metaphysics to somehow um, dissect Jesus to fill it out the godly bits and, and, and cast aside the human bits or do various configurations of those two things. Jensen instead takes Jesus to be the son he made himself out to be by calling upon God as father and then do the difficult work. And it is difficult work and the jury's out on whether he himself pulled it off or whether anyone is capable of constructing such a metaphysics, but nonetheless do the difficult work of trying to bend all those fundamental concepts about the nature of reality around the startling, odd fact that the second person of the Trinity was born of Mary and crucified under Pilate. And this God that, that Jensen presents to us gets odder and odder as you begin to see this vision of a God who simply is, and again, words almost deliberately chosen there, simply is the act of his own choice. That God behappens himself, as Jensen puts it, in dialogue with Bart. Um, God does himself, but in such a spectacular way that he does himself with us. He does himself as one singular event that is, at one and the same time, an implosion of freedom, in Jensen's words, that is simultaneously an explosion of love. Uh, a conclusion that's reached by a sustained attention to the gospel, to what happens in and around Jerusalem. A refusal by Jensen to evacuate that story for some deeper realm or some higher mystery or some alternative reality that would somehow be um, somehow supersede it. He track, tracks the story of Jesus, he sticks with the story of Jesus, and in so doing, here's an odd theologian who allows Jesus to be lord of the way we think and determinative of every aspect of reality. And in so doing, God is strange, but who are we to question our way behind God or behind beyond Jesus Christ to begin to adjudicate how a God should be? Yeah. So it's, I want to come back. You used, I mean, let's, I hope people can appreciate. This is how the guy preaches as well, by the way. Um, but the. I'm ring rusty. The language. I'm ring rusty. Uh, ring I'm rusty. I'm not like this yeah. on Zoom. Microsoft Teams. Shadowy platonic cave of our own simulations, <laughs> which has drawn us into its web. The Lord handing us over to our screens. The world falls apart. The church turns to its idols and says, technology will save us. Well, by golly, we'll find out it won't. It's oh, going to eat us all cheerful, up. A cheerful <laughs> yeah. way this morning. Well, I've only seen these four walls for about eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you're looking at my pretty face now. Hopefully that'll cheer you up a bit. Well, I wish I was, but I'm um, looking at pixels. 
Nice pixels, though. Now, um, you used the word choice, and you used, um, yeah, well, you mentioned Bart. And I want to come back to those a little bit later on, because I think they're really, really important, certainly for, for later chapters, but actually perhaps for the whole of Jensen's theology. But maybe it will be helpful for us to understand Jensen's oddness by comparing and contrasting with more, how shall we say, classical ways of, of understanding divinity and Jesus in relation to divinity. And and this leads into your summary of substance metaphysics. And uh, maybe you could say something about that and what the problem is, as far as Jensen's concerned, with substance metaphysics. Well, there's a task. So, first off, we're dealing with something that is highly complex, something that is um, very refined and has depths to discourse that are beyond our fathoming. So any account to summarise is going to be somewhat crude and it's going to always um, risk the straw man argument, which we want to avoid. But if we take that as some sort of qualification of what I'm about to say, I suppose at the heart of it is a is that human endeavour to work out what reality is, to make sense of this seeming um, set of appearances that confront us to interrogate what anything is. And things probably, well, thing and is are the key words there. What, what are these things that we find ourselves amongst and we find ourselves as? And the substance metaphysics was really an attempt to make sense of change, of difference. So given, for example, that any moment is a unique configuration of a set of particulars, um, what is it that makes them cohere as one? What, what persists through the changes as anything may come and go? What constitutes the unity through time to make a thing what it is, despite its changes? And loosely speaking. Substance Metaphysics was a long sustained project that sought to make sense of the accidents and the appearances of the happenings through time and across space by positing that what's really real stands under what we encounter. Substance literally means uh, in its sort of etymology, standing under. And therefore the Substance Metaphysics was an attempt to posit a sort of world of, of natures that would ma be manifest in various forms so that we could make sense of the thing that persists through the changes. Now, to cut a long story short, that project, which was undertaken by minds much better than our own and written with pens much um, more skilled than our own, tried to capture the nature of reality by positing a uh, a series of natures that are ultimately unified in being. Being that is ultimately um, singular, um, without definition to all intents and purposes, something that is, something that sheerly is, something that doesn't change, something that, and because it doesn't change, it's essentially timeless, because if time is anything, it's the change from before to after in some transient present. Um, and so substance offered a view of reality that was ultimately a singularity. 
a timeless realm um, that it, in which all change, all differences were in some sense a deficiency of falling away from being. Now, let me again say that's an inadequate and somewhat um, prejudiced summary of a very complex uh, ontology. But nonetheless, it, it might just uh, gesture towards the problem that Jensen identifies, is that if what's really real is one, if what's really real is timeless, if what's really real lies beneath or beyond the accidental happenings of the lives that we live, and more importantly, the stories that we tell, then they would appear to be antithetical to the gospel, which is intrinsically tellable about certain happenings, about events, about comings and goings, twists and turns, and the reality of a life lived in and around Jerusalem that terminates on the cross. And therefore, when the church begins to carry, according to Jensen, when the church begins to carry the strange message triggered by those startled women running from that garden tomb to share good news with the apostles who then head out primarily westward into a discourse with heralds of peace which centre on the good news that Jesus now lives with death behind him, they were effectively met with a question. What sort of being is this Jesus? What sort of um, entity is this Jesus? What, what's his nature, as it were? And to put it bluntly, that question's loaded. It's loaded with that metaphysics that sees difference and change and happenings as somehow at best penultimate and at worst some deficiency. And the church therefore had to um, navigate its way through those questions in order to articulate an account of the God we proclaim who wasn't somehow subsumed or filleted from the gospel itself, but was instead allowed to display that splendor that we see in the life that's lived between Jesus and his father and the spirit they share. And so um, that's really what Jensen's trying to do. He's trying to continue that work of allowing the gospel story to be primary, that it's about what happens with Jesus. It's tellable, it's narratable, and therefore the nature of reality needs to be accommodated to that rather than the other way around. We don't set it, um, we don't set the gospel somehow um, relegated beneath some pre-existing vision of reality. Jesus is Lord, even over our metaphysics. And Jensen's entire project is an attempt to continue that process of evangelizing the way we imagine reality. Hmm. I mean, it, this is then a crude summary of what you've just said. And, and bear in mind, I do pretend to be a biblical scholar. Um, so this could be um, way off. But you're saying then that there's a way of understanding God, the divine, um, the, that which exists um, by assuming a set of metaphysical coordinates and then we do theology in a way that prioritizes those concerns and we have to fit Jesus in uh, so you know this I mean this is the way that he's opposing uh, you know so then okay well God is timeless but then at some short time uh, 
however paradoxical that is, the the unfleshed word became a, a human man, Jesus Christ, uh, at some point in history on the time axiom and uh, um, um, and so on. You know, this is sort of a one way of understanding it. But what you're suggesting is that Robert Jensen thinks that this is not starting in the right place. It's not starting with Jesus Christ, the name Jesus Christ, but rather with a set of metaphysical coordinates that we are forcing Jesus to fit into. And he's saying we need to begin with Jesus Christ and then make the metaphysics fit Jesus, not the other way around. Is that one way of summarizing that distinction that you've just drawn there? I think it's a it's a good way. Uh, the, I mean, Jensen would often describe his project right from it, its sort of, um, you know, it, its its beginnings as as an attempt to evangelize our metaphysics, um, to baptize the way we see the world, and and not by a mere sprinkling, but by full immersion, um, to be those people who. And this is where the oddity of God kicks in, and, and we too are called to be odd, who dare to think that all of reality is somehow, and that somehow, of course, is what's up for debate in all theological discussions, but all of reality is somehow configured and shaped and determined to be what it is because of Jesus. And therefore, the, the ordering well, therefore, Jesus is Lord, and he is not set to serve this photo fit that we've constructed about how things must be or how they seem to be to us or the way a God must be. All those assumptions that we cherish and hold dear and are so deeply buried within us that very few of us articulate them. They're the parts of any, I think it was Stephen Tolman who once said, you know, the, the parts of metaphysics, those parts of any conversation that go without saying. And therefore they're never said because we just share these common assumptions. And the question is whether those, whether the gospel has got deep into those assumptions. Jensen wants to put God deep into the flesh and deep into the mind and deep into the categories with which we think and to dare to begin the project of laboring away to say, how will reality be? How is reality best considered if it begins and ends or world without end with this odd Nazarene, this one born of a woman and laid in the tomb that men dig? And this Jesus at a particular time in a particular place, is God spectacularly particular? You know, the scandal of particularity is a phrase that's bandied around, not quite sure who coined it. Um, but Jensen really does pursue the scandal of particularity. He's not ashamed of the oddity of Jesus, the particularity of his location, of any aspect of his, of his reality. Um, he, he takes that as, as the great given and then begins to do the difficult work of, of bending all things around that. Of, of rethinking everything so it's a it's a conceptual revolution and it's something that he thinks the church has always done he, he understands the doctrine of the trinity christology from a positive angle as that ongoing endeavor to reshape metaphysics so he effectively sees the church arriving into a culture that had polished a series of concepts into good shape um, that the church was handed we now talk about persons and nature 
but th those Trinitarian concepts were handed to the church with a backstory that placed them within a substance metaphysics. And Jensen thinks the doctrine of the Trinity reshaped those concepts so that they effectively operate as um, a plot summary of what happens with Jesus, a summary that provides us with a condensed name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that really is the contraction of that great story that demands to be told about what happens with Jesus amidst his people, Israel, and the rest of us thrown in. Um, what happens there is what happens to all things because it effectively is the happening that is God. It's the place where God happens himself. I'm beginning this, to breathe again. Yeah, I can, I can, I can sorry sing. If I'm I sorry hear. if there's a bit of a torrent, but like I say, it's been a bit, you know, bureaucratic emails and stuff get, it's all a bit soul destroying. So it's absolutely delightful to stretch my legs, my linguistic legs, but um, yeah. pity, the, pity the listener. Or oh, maybe plural. I don't think so. Yeah, well, maybe not. Um, but the um, it might be worthwhile just joining dots here. I know many of our, our listeners are primarily um, in, in the realm of biblical studies and engage with biblical studies. But it seems to me that a lot of, a lot of what you've just said relates to current debates in Pauline scholarship insofar as it pertains to apocalyptic readings of Paul. Those readings of Paul which take Paul's use of apocalypse, um, say Galatians chapter 1, seriously and foreground the reality of the risen Christ in encountering Paul and transforming his theological imagination and then thereby Paul wrestles all such matters pneumatology, faith, law into conformity with Jesus Christ um, rather than reading Paul the other way around. It seems to me that there are, there's a lot of overlap anyway between a certain apocalyptic constrals of Paul and your summary of Jensen just now. Well, one but would hope, anyway, one would hope and, and it's worth putting as a footnote, um, the way, the patience and time that Jensen spent with scripture. I mean, this is a biblical theologian. This is someone who's the, the pinnacle of his, his work, really, are, are the commentaries that he's left us, um, biblical commentaries that I think are astounding in, in different ways. This is someone who's sought to um, serve the church that is ruled with that, you know, by scripture that has handed itself um, into, the, into the service of God in accordance with what is revealed in scripture. So he never ventured far from the Bible. And of course, we, we know that the, the Bible, I mean, I'm trying to say Jensen's God's odd and Jensen's work odd, and we might as well stick the, the Bible into that list of oddities. Um, that, that's a, you know, a, an odd tool to, to, to use and to, and to um, submit ourselves to, and, and Jensen's willing to do that. Yeah, I mean, he, even his, so, his systematic theology—it's—it's it's, there's a lot of careful summary of scripture in there, much more than I was expecting, um, in engaging with a systematic theology. But he really does wrestle with the the scriptures and, and biblical scholarship yeah. to to make his case. It's a good case in point. If you if you take a look at say the first volume that you mentioned of the systematics, there's um, biblical footnotes everywhere. Um, and, and not simply in a proof texting way, but trying to draw out the sort of um, the story that the Bible tells in some sort of loosely structured whole. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that the 
biblical footnotes drop out precisely at the points where Jensen's trying to engage the concept of being, where he's trying to engage with the questions raised by the substance metaphysics. And part of the reason for that is that the substance metaphysics isn't a biblical concept. So the Bible sort of falls out of view at the particular points where you're engaging the culture that we find ourselves immersed in as, as missionaries. Um, but anyway, that's, that's hmm. by the by. <clears throat> well, you've been talking a lot about some of what is at the centre of Jensen's theology. I mean, it could you not in a, what in is, a few sentences? Is. Not what who is, is who thank is. You. I mean, Fair that's enough. the oddity of it is that there's the man Jesus Christ. If if in a few sentences you were to say this is Jensen's signature move, in light of everything you've just said, I mean, what? How would you how would you summarise it? I think he takes. Jesus seriously. I think Jensen takes Jesus seriously. I'm not saying anyone else doesn't, but he takes Jesus seriously to be the son that he made himself out to be by calling on God as father. He, it's Jesus who, who does what he does. And, and Jensen's signature move is really not to move. His signature move is, is to hold his gaze there, not to think that we need to move towards some abstraction, that we need to somehow create what he sees as a conceptual fiction, some unfleshed word, some unfleshed son who is somehow related to this Jesus. But instead, not to move, to stay close to Jesus and to seek to ride the plot waves of the story, as he puts it, to seek to... Um, draw out from what happens with Jesus the very building blocks of reality um, in this world and the next. You know, so his signature move is basically Jesus and then stay there. So his whole attention um, and that of his reader will be drawn time and again through the course of the life of the Son of God, as he ventures from conception in Mary's womb towards crucifixion at Pilate's hands, to, to trace that story, to ride its plot waves, as he puts it in one place, to try and determine who this one is, who does himself in our midst in such a spectacular way that it would appear that God has done himself as God with the creatures. That that quote that you read from the beginning of um, that generous introduction that, that God has done himself in such a way that he's wedded himself to us so that the father cannot have this son without the rest of us being thrown in that Jesus lives so unconditionally for us so unconditionally um, ecstatic in his movement to embrace us that his very personhood is defined solely by that as it were to such an extent that the father cannot have his beloved son without the rest of us being thrown in and um, you know remarkable that God would do himself in such a spectacular way from eternity in the freedom of his being doing himself to include us hmm. so I, I, I'm thinking that there will be quite a few listeners that will be Ticking the box, of course we want to start our theology with Jesus Christ. But perhaps what you're saying is that Robert Jensen really rubs our noses in this and causes us to consider 
where we are not doing that and to ask the questions of what might happen if Jesus Christ really is the second person of the Trinity. Um, do you think that's fair? I do think that's fair. I think he's a good conversation partner. I mean, let's be frank, most people disagree with him. Let's be frank, most people think he's wrong. But as Steve Holmes once said in conversation, and I mentioned Steve earlier, but Steve Holmes once said, Jensen's wrong, but for all the right reasons. And it's those right reasons, the fact that he does desire to take Jesus seriously, that he does seek to really interrogate those assumptions that we bring into each theological debate, that he really begins, really desires to baptise the way we think, that makes him a, an ideal conversation partner. And when you throw in the fact that he writes with a, a, a precision and a, and a concision, um, so he's... He, he, he writes in a, you know, his, his prose is super tight. Um, it's explosive. It, it's sort of, it's the sort of thing that will, he will always make you think. And whether you agree with him or not, I generally th think the church would be a better church if we engaged with him. He'll make us all better theologians by exposing what we thought went without saying. On that note, I think we should probably move into the quick fire round. Um, and I'm hoping, as always, to catch someone out. Um, what does this mean, quick fire round? Okay, well, what this means is that I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't want you to think about it. I just want you to give me a knee-jerk response. And, and just, just a very quick response. Um, and some of it's going to be so bland and, and, and meaningless, you'll, you'll wonder really why you're having a conversation with me. But that's the point. Are there wrong answers? So, Yes, of course, there are wrong answers. There are morally wrong answers, and, and well, we'll come to that. Um, hopefully, you'll pass the test with flying colours, but we shall see. So, let's start off. So, would you prefer an evening out with friends playing darts in the local, or front row seats at a performance of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra? Oh, the former. Yeah, yeah, of course you would. They wouldn't let me, they right. wouldn't let me in a performance at the Royal Philharmonic. No, they wouldn't, no. They'd probably think you're the bouncer at the door, actually, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Two. The most overrated theologian, ideally dead. Okay. Uh, that is the most overrated dead theologian, not an overrated th theologian you want dead. That's the next question. So the most overrated dead theologian. That's an awful question to ask of anyone. Yeah, I know. The most yeah, overrated yeah. by me? Yeah. Or in general? De by you. Who do you think is the most overrated dead theologian? I don't know. We got him. He I don't give know. us an answer. I mean, I'm sure God rates us all uh, with varying degrees of, of failing. Um, the most overrated. Who's had the biggest impact? Well, let, let me sidestep it. I suppose Jensen's fear is that the most influential theologian who has bequeathed so much good on the church, but also so much ill is Augustine, and he's often knocked for his knocking of Augustine. But nonetheless, Augustine's influence is something that, and I know that it's, it's controversial, but um, Jensen would probably say he's the most overrated. But that's un unfair. I w yeah. Well, you did. So you, you did sidestep. Okay, let's, let's make this a bit easier for you. Your favourite colleague at St. Melitus College. Come on, quick. Quick. You've got to be quick. 
Yeah, I'll throw you that bone, Chris Tilly. Yeah, good man, good man. Okay, now I wrote a chapter for a book you edited, Essays on the Trinity. Which was your favourite essay in that book in which I wrote a chapter? <laughs> I'm not going to throw you another bone. Robert Jensen <laughs> writes that like, there's some, there's some oh, fantastic... Um, I forgot about there's, his there's essay. Some, there's some fantastic essays in, in that um, slightly odd book. Um, but there, there's a really good piece by... Robert Jensen, which was one of, the, I, I believe it might even have been the final piece that he wrote shortly before his death. Um, but you, you come a close eighth. <laughs> okay, what character trait do you most admire? We still talking about you. <laughs> if you like. I like talking about me. What character trait? Well, it's going to make me sound pious, but I do admire faithfulness commitment um, patience long suffering I do all, all things necessary in a friendship with someone like yourself Chris but um, <laughs> I, I, I do I think I think faithfulness I think we live in a world that um, has undervalued faithfulness and obviously we see that played out in all sorts of spheres but commitment faithfulness um, I think is, is something loyalty those sorts of aspects to be for the other in ways that are unshakable because some are in it all I suspect that is close to a definition of God and what it means to be Father, Son and Spirit and not only Father, Son and Spirit but Father, Son and Spirit with the rest of us mm. thrown in Okay well then one final question and this one's a tough one because um, I know you're a systematic theologian um, and it's Difficult precisely because you're a systematic theologian, I think. Okay, First Chronicles. Is that Old Testament or New Testament? That's, that's Old Testament. Oh, you surprised me. Well done, sir. And, and it, was, it was instant even. Okay, back to the book. Now, that's a little bit offensive that you would be... Yeah, idea, idea. Now, I want us to get to the doctrine of God. Um, you, in chapter six, um, you, I mean, this really gets us into the heart of, of the book. Um, you, you show in chapter six how Jensen adopts, but yet adapts, Bart's doctrine of election. And I wonder if you could explain Bart's insight and what is it that Jensen changes. Well, I can I can give it a go, and I certainly give it a go in in the book. Um, I suppose just to, without undermining the question or the task you've just set me, with Jensen, it's not that we really get to the doctrine of God from somewhere else. I mean, everything he's talking about, because of the way he sets things up, uh, and you'll find this in his systematics. He draws things into the doctrine of God that would not normally be found there. You know, so crucifixion and resurrection and church and all sorts of things will find a place in the doctrine of God because he constructs a vision of reality in which God is this peculiar act in which he does himself in spectacular form and in such a way that he's doing himself with us so the risk is that he's drawing all things into the doctrine of God he still maintains the distinction between God and everything else which we might talk about later on. Anyway, um, Bart. Dear Bart, so 
uh, okay, another, let's face it, this is complex stuff and it's all too easy to get this wrong and I'm well aware of such realities like Bart Wars and much better Bart scholars than me, but here's a sort of layman's um, understanding of what Bart's up to. In some sense, the, Bart's breakthrough post-Romans is, is to push together revelation and ontology. What I mean by that is that Bart effectively takes revelation to be a success. God is known. He doesn't labor towards that possibility, but instead begins with that as an actuality. And that's why you've been speaking about God doing himself, which was maybe well, perhaps strange language for, for some. Yeah, so God is a pure act. Um, Bart, Bart really uh, draws the, the event of revelation into the being of God by this backward glance that allows him to lay out the triune persons across the event of revelation, effectively. Um, so he pushes together God's being um, with God's act, which all of us theologians do. You, you, you know, at some stage you have to uh, proceed on the basis that God has done something with us and then you might seek to decipher who God is in himself on the reasonable assumption that he's not playing tricks with us when he does what he does with us, that God's not putting on a different voice, as it were. He's not impersonating another God when he says Jesus Christ, that this, what we get with Jesus is truly God in God's self. And that um, sort of signature move of Bart to draw together God's act with God's being effectively presents us with a lively God, you know, a God who is somehow this happening, this occurrence, this this act. And if those classical concepts of procession and begetting mean anything, it would seem to be that the church has drawn the stuff of life and happenings and events up into the doctrine of God. It might be parked there in some sort of distinction to the created realm, but nonetheless, happenings are pushed up into the event of God's life. Anyway, Bart effectively, as, as readers of his will know, and Bart is uh, certainly worth laboring with for any biblical scholar if they're the crowd we're speaking to, um, Bart is, uh, effectively ends up in a place uh, triggered really by his uh, desire to draw out what sort of event what sort of act this God is who does himself with us. And his thinking all gravitates as it should towards Jesus Christ. And Bart ends up with this uh, you know, cathedral of thought in which Jesus Christ is um, God's decision to be a particular God, arguably. There's all sorts of things like Bart Wars going on, so I don't want to uh, sort of over-egg my own reading of him. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Bart arguably has this account in which God's decision to be a particular God centers on the man Jesus Christ. That is to say God elects himself. He decides in his freedom who he will be. That how God is, God is not prisoner to how he is, but is Lord over his own being. So God chooses from eternity who and how he will be. Now, that act of decision, which centres on Jesus Christ, left Bart with a question, really, and it's not altogether clear, and the Bart Wars would certainly suggest there's different ways of reading him, um, but it's not altogether clear whether Bart thinks that the eternal covenant, which is God's decision to be a particular God, happens, so to speak, in some pre-temporal reality, an eternal decision 
by God to be the man Jesus Christ who dies for the ungodly. Whether that decision is somehow acted in, as it were, in eternity, and then acted out in time. So that, to use the language of the third volume of dogmatics, creation becomes the external form of the covenant. So there's, if you like, a, a, the potential to have a gap, some sort of um, event in which God does himself eternally, and then that event is played out in time. Now, Jensen, right from the start of his career, when he was um, doing his own doctoral work, focused on Bart, was really... Um, pushing as to whether that and is necessary you know does God do himself in eternity and then in time or do we need that and what stops us seeing the act in which God does himself but happens himself and that's really hard to imagine because we tend to think there has to be a someone to do anything but what the tradition would tell us around the notions of God being pure act is that God is the event of doing himself so that doer and act coincide that the father is fathering the son is sunning the spirit is spirating that actually the persons are the activity as it were what Jensen inquires of Barth and where he effectively adapts Bart's doctrine of election is to locate that eternal decision by which God chooses to be a particular God. He locates it in the history that we see played out in and around Jerusalem. That what, hap- what is happening with Jesus and what happens over that first Easter weekend is effectively the act of God's own being done in our presence and in our midst so that the covenant is lived out in time. So God doesn't make a choice and then live it. He lives the choice. And the living of that choice is precisely what happens between conception in Mary's womb and death at Pilate's hands, which to all intents and purposes, as Jensen sees it, is a question. Easter is a question. Will the father be the father of this son? even though it means including all these sin-sick betrayers, all these hammer-wielding centurions and all the rest of it. Will, will God be God for the ungodly? And the resurrection is the act of decision by which God chooses himself to be this God for the ungodly. So he, Jensen is effectively locating what Bart had arguably pushed into eternity right here in the midst of mm. time. This is a quote from page 67 to 68 of the book yeah. um, in which you say that for Jensen... So I say Trini- the opposite. <laughs> no, no, no. Trinitarian concepts like begetting and spirating end up denoting the eventful happenings in time. Births and begets coincide and do so precisely. It seems to me that summarizes exactly what you've just tried to articulate there. That rather than pushing begetting and spirating into some pre-temporal eternity and then there's history and Jesus Christ you're you're saying that Jensen makes the history of Jesus determine what those Trinitarian concepts mean well yes I mean of course it includes a whole um, range of conceptual gymnastics and twists and turns to make a a sentence like that understandable so within the context of the book 
hopefully the reader would make sense of it by that stage. But what Jensen's keen to remind us is that all of the wranglings that led to the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, all of the discussions that produced concepts such as begetting and spirating, those sort of eternal processions, what he wants us to remember is what those discussions were about was Jesus and his Father and the Spirit. What he fears is that we effectively think we're now in possession of these eternal relations, these eternal happenings of begetting and spirating, and therefore we have to leave what happens in our midst and push them up into some ethereal realm of some static, timeless eternity where the concepts end up signifying next to nothing. Um, He instead wants to, much more radically, align the two, not not to collapse one into the other. He is careful in maintaining a distinction between God and everything else, but to align the two in such a way that what the Father eternally speaks is a word who is precisely the man Jesus Christ from womb to tomb. So that the Father is Father only in the speaking of this particular word. Now, that's odd because you've got to do all sorts of weird stuff to make sense of that. But at its heart is Jensen's refusal to question his way behind the Father's fathering. He doesn't think we can legislate what the Father eternally says. He doesn't think we have to assume that the word that's eternally spoken is somehow empty, some sort of mute, unsignifying word, some bland concept like word. He thinks what the Father speaks is specific, it's determined, and it is precisely the speaking of all that happens with Jesus. And so he's he's wanting to say that what we see as creatures in the company of this Jesus is precisely what is being spoken from eternity. Mm. This is this brings us all back to the evangelization of metaphysics that uh, that you open with, really, doesn't it? Because we've now got to wrestle some metaphysical concepts, time and eternity, into the discipleship of Jesus Christ. It seems to me is is what you're suggesting. Well, it is, but at its heart is, I think. Like I said earlier on, Jensen's um, persistence, he wants to stick with Jesus because he thinks Jesus sticks with us. Um, he, he doesn't see any uh, anything within the story that we need to tell of what happens to this Nazarene, anything in that story that provokes some leveraging of space between Jesus and the Son. He thinks that the creation of any metaphysical gap, um, usually signified by a sort of um, unexamined concept of became man, um, we usually allow that verb became to sort of cover over the fact that we're basically thinking there's this thing called the sun that's somehow related to this Jesus. And then we've effectively got two things that we're trying to to grapple with or or paper over the relation between the two. Um, Jensen instead wants us to stick with Jesus. Jesus, Perhaps Jesus is the eternal son. 
that he made himself out to be by calling a God and Father. And all of the conceptual gymnastics surrounding the doctrine of the Trinity are about Jesus. And he thinks it's only a metaphysical prejudice that would demand that we somehow move beyond Jesus and take the concepts generated by Jesus to construct a realm that is somehow not identical with what happens with Jesus, an eternal realm that is somehow once removed from what happens with Jesus. Now this, we've, we've dealt with quite a, a lot of these in dense and uh, complex theological um, issues, but um, I'm looking at the time and, and we do need to, to bring this to a conclusion. And I thought it would be a good idea to, to end in the way indeed you do in the book. Um, in, in chapter nine, what on earth do we do? You, you lay out some of the practical implications of all of this, church life and Christian living and prayer and such like. Um, perhaps you could just pick out your two favourite implications of all of this um, for, for church life, for our own lives today. Well, that's a, another big question. What do I love about Jensen's theology for my own life? I think... In some respects, Jensen provides you with a way of imagining reality that removes from us the need to flee to some other realm. He gives us a vision in which the contingencies of my own existence, the oddities of the particular path I walk, the particularities of a church like St. Cuthbert's where we break bread and preach the gospel and gather week by week the contingencies of my humdrum existence that somehow all of these contingencies are not to be fled because they're somehow woven into the reality of God. Jensen's God doesn't require us to travel across some metaphysical breach to reach because he's somehow, and again somehow is what's always being discussed, somehow at home with us in this reality of particularities and contingencies. So basically Jensen keeps your feet on the ground. The difficulty is, is that the ground begins to, to spin and, and twirl because he's also trying to bend all time around the resurrected Christ with this vision of reality being somehow construed in relation to whatever happens in that garden tomb at the first Easter in which the verb resurrect denotes the aseity of God. But I do like the way he's basically humdrum. And when I, it's what I didn't like about him in some respects when I first encountered him, because I, I wanted to be a Gnostic. We all do it somewhere deep down inside. We want to escape this mortal coil and melt into some gloopy soup of oneness. And here was this theologian who presented us with a very concrete, fleshy God and, and tangible sacraments that happened to be bread and wine. And of course, they could be something else, perhaps, but they're not. And there's something about the givenness of God and the givenness of reality and the contingencies of our existence that we seek to flee to be everywhere and always at all times. But actually, Jensen just says, be at home in the hypostatic path that you've been called to tread, in this nexus of relationships that I'm embedded, to actually find God 
to find Jesus Christ in amongst all of these and the breaking of the bread. A God who I can actually speak to and direct my voice towards because he's tangibly present in that act of the Mass. So that's what I like. I like it. It's down to earth. Well, Lincoln, thank you very much for your time in discussing Jesus in the Trinity, a beginner's guide to the theology of Robert Jensen. Very rarely have I had so much fun reading a book and having had my own brain melt in the process in joyful ways. And I must say, when I finished the book, I had a fresh grasp of God's commitment to me and his love and his faithfulness, which is perhaps the highest praise that I could it's offer. It's a shame you're excluded from all of that, Chris. <laughs> sure, sure you're the, shame you're the one person not included in the gospel, but um, anyway, at least you can dream. Uh, it ended it so nicely yeah. there as Listen, well. Listen, I am deeply grateful. Like I said, it's refreshing to have a chance to talk. I would hope that um, the book can be a service to God and within the life of the church, and if anyone's willing to pick it up and labour with it, I'd hope it would excite them in ways that it's excited you. And... I think the book's better than this conversation. So don't let don't let this bureaucratic riddled um, voice put you off what I've actually managed to get down on the page. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.